0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So if you ever had a moment in your life when your words were completely inadequate to the situation you were facing, as a priest, this is my experience on at least a weekly basis. On a particularly interesting week, it's a daily experience. And on the most interesting weeks, it can seem like an hourly phenomenon. This life that we live is so wondrous, so marvelous, so obviously holy, that we find ourselves speechless in moments of ecstasy. And this life that we live is at the same time so tortured and wounding and grievous and agonizing that we find ourselves barren in moments of grief. We mouth these bland cliches that only reinforce and underscore the loneliness and the agony that we feel. But rejoicing or mourning, we know that at the times when we are hardest up against the grain of reality, when we are close to the deep things of the world, words fail us in speech and in prayer. And we're living in a time that only exacerbates this because it is a time that highly prizes spontaneity. Sometimes I feel like the internet is mainly a collection of people's outraged and snarky hot takes on various news items. And we have this enduring fascination and fixation upon eccentric geniuses and virtuosos who can take some immensely complex and arcane craft and nimbly and adroitly master it. I'm a child of the 90s, the greatest decade, and therefore all of my formative examples come from that decade. My personal favorite from this genre is the movie Amadeus, based on the stage play of the same name. This movie depicts the antagonistic relationship, highly embellished and fictionalized, of course, between Mozart and Antonio Salieri. Salieri is the court composer in the Austrian court of Joseph II. And the movie is framed through the recollections of the aging Salieri who's making his confession to Roman Catholic priests. And in a monologue, Salieri says that hearing the music of Mozart was like hearing the voice of God. But instead of transporting him, it made him insanely bitter and jealous. And in one flashback, we see the young Salieri plottingly creating this piece note by note. After he figures out the sequence, there's a look of relief and gratitude that fills his face. And he looks over at a crucifix in the corner of the room and he says, grazie signori. The scene shifts and we see the Emperor Joseph playing the march that Salieri has written. And, uh, and then as he's, as he's playing, Mozart stumbles into the room and he's buoyant and he's boorish and he has no manners. And he disturbs the mannerly placidity of the scene, which merits this you know disdainful look from Salieri. And then Joseph asks Mozart to play the piece, and he moves to hand him the music, and Mozart declines, sitting down and playing the piece fluently from memory, much to the shock and the dismay of Salieri. Mozart moves through the entire, entire sequence, and then he says in kind of a bored way, the rest is just the same, isn't it? And he, he begins to say, well, you didn't do it quite right. And then he begins to revise it on the spots, looking meaningfully and jeeringly at Salieri and saying, what do you think? You see Salieri's expression turn from shock to shame and ice-cold hatred. I have to say that Murray Abraham, who was the actor who portrays the young Salieri, was able to convey so much of these nonverbal cues. And the scene concludes with him glaring at that same crucifix in the corner of his room, this time bitter and humiliated, sarcastically intoning, Grazie, Signore. We resonate with Salieri, right? When we look at these geniuses, we feel we're filled with envy. We're filled with jealousy. And at the same time, we look at the genius of Mozart with wonder and awe. And the same is true for everyone who can take a complex craft and intuitively and effortlessly do it. And in the spiritual life, there are some geniuses, some mystics, for whom the connection with God is effortless and intuitive. People for whom God's presence is always near and for whom conversation with him is natural. People for whom visions and words from the Lord are nearly constant. And there are perhaps some people as well who always seem to know what to say in every situation, who never find themselves speechless in the face of great ecstasy or tragedy. But that's not where most of us live, is it? Most of us are like the disciples in our passage today, needing to be instructed in how to pray. For most of us, prayer is not intuitive, prayer is like a craft. It's like woodworking or ballet, which requires us to learn the basic steps and practice them over and over and over again until we're proficient. But prayer is unlike ballet or woodworking in that it is the art of arts. It is the most sublime of all arts, and therefore proficiency does not happen quickly, but rather proficiency is a lifelong endeavor. Prayer is the most sublime of arts because the results of prayer are not beautiful artifacts. They're beautiful lives. Lives that have been healed through the constant infusion of divine life. Lives that have been transformed through the constant operation of grace upon the heart. It is, moreover, the art of arts because it is the most democratic of arts. No one is beyond the reach of redemption. And therefore, no one is incapable of proficiency in prayer. And yet this art is incredibly arduous in part because the results are usually not immediately forthcoming. With other crafts, one can measure one's progress as the artifact is increasingly refined. You can measure your mastery and fluency in the steps of a dance. But with prayer, the results can usually only be seen over a long period of time. And that is why we are actually required, we're enjoined, we're commanded to persevere in prayer. That's what Jesus does with this parable that follows his teaching of the prayer in Luke. And therefore, most of us also need to be encouraged and exhorted to pray because we intuitively believe in what we can see and experience. And therefore, we harbor this secret belief that prayer accomplishes nothing, either in our own lives or in the world. And our culture, moreover, nurses the belief that human beings are masters of their own destinies. And therefore, we are intuitively more inclined to trust the work of our hands than the hands of the one who created and is redeeming all things. Because the work is arduous, we easily become discouraged in prayer and give up. And moreover, human beings of all sorts are naturally spiritually lazy, and we easily flit from thing to thing, staying on the surface of life, whereas prayer is about becoming attuned to the deep structures of reality. And the work is also difficult because we stand before God and have no idea what to say. It's easier to do something else so we usually do. And there are countless other reasons why the work is so arduous. But in our passage today, we are given abundant grace, grace upon grace, because our Lord, who is the master of prayer, is teaching us how to become proficient in prayer. He is giving us the exact language in which we are to pray and the exact things for which we are to pray. So the Catechism of the Anglican Church in North America, by the way, did you know that we have a catechism? You should know about the Catechism, and you should read and study the Catechism. It's called To Be a Christian. You can find it online for free. Father Jack and Father Joel, who are both serving today, were on the task force which created this document, so you know it's good. Anyway, the Catechism says about the Lord's Prayer that it is both a practice and a pattern of prayer. A practice and a pattern of prayer. We're meant to pray this prayer as a practice continuously until the Lord comes. Because we say in this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we go on praying this prayer until the marriage of earth and heaven is complete, until heaven floods earth with God's shalom and every tear is wiped from every eye. And we're meant to pray this prayer as a pattern as well, to let it teach us the things for which we ought to pray in our own words. I'll say more about making the Lord's Prayer a pattern for our prayer in just a moment. But first, how do we make the repetition of the Lord's Prayer a practice, both as individuals and as a church? So Father Joel mentioned in his sermon last week, much to my delight, that as Anglicans we have a threefold practice of prayer, which we received from the early church. Again, this is all in our catechism. Check it out, questions 251 through 255. It'll be on the podcast, so you don't have to remember that. Our practice of prayer is faithful attendance at weekly communion. The daily offices of morning and evening prayer, all found in the prayer book. So if you don't have one, get your hands on one. And private devotions of various sorts. These include things like meditations upon the scriptures, spontaneous prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, the practice of fasting, the practice of giving your money away, and a great many other things. But our practice of prayer, if we follow it, ensures that we will say the Lord's Prayer at least 14 times in a week. Twice a day, Monday through Saturday in the morning and evening and morning and evening prayer. Sunday morning in the service of the Holy Eucharist, which you'll notice when we say the Eucharistic prayer, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. And then Sunday night and evening prayer again. And that's a lot of repetition of the Lord's Prayer. But we shouldn't stop there. We should pray the Lord's Prayer at all times. We should memorize it and inscribe it on our hearts. The 14 times we pray this prayer during the week are meant to be encouragements and inducements to do it more often. Indeed, to pray it without ceasing. Do you feel foolish or sheepish about the idea of praying the Lord's Prayer at all times? And especially when you don't know what else to say to God? Or do you feel like it violates the Lord's Commandment against vain repetition? You shouldn't feel that way. Because it's also the Lord's Command that you pray this prayer continuously. He has revealed to you in His Word that these are the words that the Father longs to hear from you. And the Lord only does and says what he sees the Father doing and saying. So when the disciples see Jesus praying, they say, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And they say this because it was one of the responsibilities of a rabbi to teach his disciples how to approach Adonai, the Holy One, the Lord, in prayer. And they're saying, John is a rabbi, he has disciples, he taught them to pray. You are our rabbi, so teach us to pray. This is your responsibility. And then the Lord commands them, when you are praying, say these words. So I think there's probably many reasons why the Lord commanded them, and so us, to pray this way. But the most interesting one to me is that it seems, it seems that he seems, or sorry, he seems to think that we need to be told what to ask for in prayer. That we don't sort of natively or intuitively know what to ask for. And so he teaches us what to ask for. In other words, Part of the craft of prayer is learning what it is we're meant to ask for in prayer. Left to our own devices, our meditations and prayers tend to circulate around the small and narrow cluster of concerns and anxieties that dominate our hearts. And this is, I want to stress, not a bad thing. God is keenly interested in us and what concerns us. But we also need to be encouraged to lift our sights to what God is doing in the world and so to frame our prayers so as to participate in the mission of God. If we pray the Lord's prayer with intentionality, not just as a practice but as a pattern, we begin to use it to frame our prayer lives, it will transform the way in which we pray. Because every priority of the gospel is expressed in this prayer, from the opening address, Our Father, to the Amen. The opening address, Our Father, means to teach us this one fundamental fact. We are never praying alone, but always with Christ and the holy angels and the whole company of heaven and the whole body of Christ extended throughout the world. Whenever we as individuals begin to open our mouths in prayer to God, we are also joining that whole vast company of the body of Christ. That is not insignificant. That means that our prayers will always be heard and that we are never isolated or alone in our prayer. And then the Lord's Prayer is followed, that our Father is followed by a series of petitions. The one that we memorize is principally drawn from Matthew's version of the prayer, which contains seven petitions. Luke's version gives us five, but they cover the same ground. So whether we count the five petitions in Luke or the seven petitions in Matthew, if we allow this prayer to become a pattern for our prayers, it offers us the full catalog of all the things for which we are to pray. The practice of this prayer it's like the basic steps that enable, to Im- enable us to improvise freely in prayer. Just like a jazz musician must develop fluency in the basic elements of the music in order to diverge harmonically from those patterns, so we too must learn how to pray and what to pray for so that our improvisations harmonize, so that they produce in us and in the world the good fruit of the kingdom. The third century African theologian Tertullian wrote that in this prayer is an epitome of the whole gospel. So we repeat this prayer and we meditate on it. And in meditating upon each of its petitions, we learn what the heart of God is for his creation. Tertullian goes on to say of the first petition, Hallowed be thy name, that it is a prayer both that we would persevere in the faith and that those who do not yet know God would come to know him. So all the prayers for the mission of the church emerge in a sense from this first petition. In the second petition, Thy Kingdom come. We pray for the completion of this mission. We're praying quite explicitly in this prayer for the return of Christ, who is the kingdom in flesh. The theologian Origen called him, and I think, worthily, the Otto Basilea, the kingdom of God in Himself. We're acknowledging in this petition that that's what we long for, and we're also acknowledging that the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness that the world, the flesh, and the devil are against the kingdom of God in this age. It asks that God's will would prevail against these powers which rob the creation of its integrity and human beings of their flourishing. Martin Luther says that we should let this petition drive us to pray that God would restrain evil in this world. And he gives us an example of how he would frame his prayer according to this petition. Here's what he says. O dear Lord, God and Father, Thou knowest that the world, if it cannot destroy thy name or root out thy kingdom, is busy both day and night with wicked tricks and schemes, strange conspiracies and intrigue, huddling together in secret council, giving mutual encouragement and support, raging and threatening and going about with every evil intention to destroy thy name, thy word, thy kingdom, and thy children. Therefore, dear God, God and Father, convert them and defend us. It's a prayer for the protection of the good things that are coming up like the mustard seed out of the ground. The kingdom of God would be preserved in all of its fullness and that the church would be protected. The third petition in Luke's version, give us this day our daily bread, draws us both into our own anxieties about our own dependence and it offers us the opportunity to trust God for our necessities in our daily life. It also draws us into the needs of the world. We are encouraged and exhorted in this petition to have compassion and in prayer to begin to lift up those needs of the world, which we cannot actually solve. These are dilemmas that are far too great for us, but not too great for the Holy Spirit. And so we're being drawn into the drama of redemption, the drama of salvation by praying for it, lifting up these needs to the Father. This petition invites us to pray for all who suffer deprivation and the lack of basic necessities. But there's another dimension to this petition that we could easily miss. The bread that we pray for in this petition is called in Greek, epiusios, our daily bread, but also our super substantial bread. I don't know if you noticed, but the kids in the kids sermon totally got this. From the beginnings of the church, this has been understood as referring both to the bread that we need to survive day to day and also the Eucharistic bread by which the body of Christ is nourished. St. Augustine says very straightforwardly, the Eucharist is our daily bread. The power belonging to this divine food makes it a bond of union. That is, it unites us more and more to Jesus and to one another. So we're praying in this, in this petition not only that material bread would not fail, but also that spiritual bread would not fail, that we would never cease to be built up into Christ's body by the power of the Holy Eucharist. We are praying that Christ would never abandon his church, that he would fulfill his promise to us, that he has established his church and that he will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against it. We're praying that in this, that he would send his spirit so that the church can perpetually be changed into Christ's likeness and brought from glory to glory. Now the fourth petition in Luke's version is unique in that it comes with a condition. We ask that we would be forgiven of our sins because we forgive others. We are simultaneously confessing in this petition that we have many sins that need forgiveness and acknowledging that our forgiveness depends upon our willingness to forgive those who have sinned against us. The rite of confession in the Book of Common Prayer is very striking in this respect. As we confess our sins, there are two questions that the priest must ask to, a, to a, uh, one who is confessing before we grant absolution. First, we ask, will you turn again to Christ as your Lord? But then secondly, we ask, will you then forgive those who have sinned against you? The condition in this petition cannot be downplayed. Both our passage in Luke and the parallel in Matthew make our forgiveness and our forgiveness of others a package deal. They come together. Now, this is pretty alarming to me. I don't know if it is to you. But I think what Jesus is telling us here is that in this practice of prayer, it must wear down in us the innate sense that we're basically okay and occasionally do bad things. Rather, it must produce in us the sense that we have been ruined and enslaved by sin. We are actually helpless in our sins and that we have been and are being rescued by an abundance of grace. And that part of that rescue means allowing the spaces of bitterness within us, the spaces where we nurse grudges and rancor and resentment. All of those must be allowed to dissipate. Now, I want to be clear. Forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. There are people for whom it would be unwise to continue in relationship with. But for our sake and for the sake of the kingdom, we cannot hold on to these debts. We cannot hold on to these grudges that we nurse. This petition asks us to step into the reality, owning our forgiveness, and in owning our forgiveness, forgiving others. Now the final petition, lead us not into temptation, needs to be carefully understood. The Greek verb that we translate, lead us not, really means two things simultaneously. Do not allow us to enter into temptation, and do not let us yield to temptation. So preserve us from the temptation itself, but when we encounter the temptation, liberate us from it. The scriptures say that God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. And actually he does not want to tempt us, but instead he wants to liberate us from the evil of temptation. We're asking him here not to allow us to take us, to take down the path that leads to sin and destruction. It asks for discernment of good and evil and the strength to choose the good. So you can see now that if we pray according to this prayer, we will invariably expand the way in which we typically pray to encompass all the purposes of the kingdom. If we allow the Lord's prayer to become not only a practice, but also a pattern for the way that we pray, we will find ourselves praying very uh, differently than how we typically do. We will find our own priorities transformed in the process as the grace of God begins its powerful work in our heart. This is slow work but it is good work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Father tell de Chardines said, above all, trust in the slow work of God. This is the slow work of God in our hearts, the work of prayer, the art of arts. So this sermon has been in some ways very focused on the nuts and bolts of prayer. I confess, it's a very practical sermon, and I did feel a degree of anxiety as I prayed for and prepared for this sermon. But I had this sense in prayer that it was incumbent upon me to be very practical and to encourage you to memorize and to to pray the Lord's Prayer as a practice and to allow the Lord's Prayer to become a pattern for your prayer. But I worried at the same time that I would fail to communicate the big picture about why any of this matters. So a couple of nights ago, I brought this worry to Mother Tish, who has the greatest imagination for preaching of anyone I've ever met. Honestly. And as I unpacked my thoughts about why it's important to pray the Lord's Prayer as a practice, she reminded me of a powerful story that the author Lauren Winner told about her former husband Griff's grandfather in one of her books. When she met this man, Griff's grandfather was dying of Alzheimer's, and he could no longer even remember his grandchildren's names. But as she attended church with Griff's family, she observed that this man, whose memories had been taken from him progressively until there was nothing left, could still recite the Lord's Prayer in the Apostles' Creed. Here's what she says. Sitting next to him, I could see and hear that Dr. Gatewood, who might not even remember how to count to ten, remembered how to pray. The Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed were somewhere in the foundation of his memory, beneath even his grandchildren's names. So maybe here is the most important thing I want to leave us with today. What shall we do and what shall we say when everything else has been taken from us? What will be the thing that stays with us when all other words and memories and cognitions fail us? Will the kingdom at that moment abandon us? Or will we instead be lifted up and carried into the kingdom by the mighty words of our Savior? Because that is always already what is happening now. It is not dependent upon us, our salvation, or the salvation of the world. It is dependent upon the grace of God, which flows forth abundantly in Jesus Christ and in these marvelous words that he has given us in this prayer. What will prove to be true of us when we can no longer project our personalities to other people? What character, what indelible imprint will come through? Will it be the words in which our Savior taught us to pray? or Will it be lines from some movie or some TV show? Which would we want it to be? Let us then become through the practice and the pattern of this prayer what we long to be for all eternity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.